Welcome to Reciprocity Podcast, where we discuss the backstories and strategies of photojournalists, sports photographers, documentary filmmakers, and photo editors. Now, here's your host, Brett Carlson. So, welcome back. Uh, we have another great episode lined up. And uh, if you don't know the name, uh, you might know it better by just her first name, Elsa. Because for my entire time in college, Elsa Garrison only went by Elsa. So, it was always just this four letters on the bottom of great photos from all these events. And it was like, I didn't know who she was. I didn't know anything about her. I just always see these four letters on these photos. And I was like, I always thought it was like Zorro or something. And there was like this superhero on the other end of the camera. Uh, so, for me, it was always really exciting. And then I finally... I uh, got to meet her at an NFL game a few years back when we were working together. Uh, and it's been awesome knowing her this whole entire time. And I think everybody that knows her is just excited. Without further ado, Elsa, how how are you doing? Doing all right. Uh, just uh, hunkering down here, I guess. This is a very weird time for sports, certainly, uh, which is all I shoot. Um, I've shot a few news assignments to kind of help out our news team. But it's been uh, pretty surreal not having uh, a game to go to, um, especially this time of year when I am used to shooting college basketball, certainly. You know, so it's 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 bizarre, to yeah. say the least. Yeah. yeah. We're all in this uh, very weird situation where uh, our whole world's got turned off, basically. Yeah. Definitely. So you're a full-time staffer at Getty Images, which is, uh, for those that don't know who I don't know who to know, but if you don't know, they're one of the top wire services. Uh, they are a little different than other wire services, though, in that uh, you are only doing photography. There's no there's no words aspect to the wire. Correct. And, and, and even more so than that versus other wire services, we have specialized photographers. So I shoot primarily sports. There are guys that shoot primarily news. Then we have a division of photographers that shoot primarily entertainment and fashion. And then there's a, a motion picture video side to us as well, or more pigeonholed, certainly than other agencies, I guess I would say. Yeah, which uh, generally is uh, kind of nice because everybody gets to do their own thing and they kind of stick to one thing right now yep. is uh, making life extra weird because when you have uh, t three out of those four things shut down, uh, a little hard to uh, kind of figure out what to do with some of your staff. Yes. So we are um, all pitching in and helping out uh, the news side of things, um, shooting um, news and events that are happening in our local areas. Um, some areas are a little busier than others. So it's just uh, it's just been a whole different process. Yeah. So um, like with everybody, let's uh, back it up and uh, let's let's hear a little about your story. How did you get started in photography and um, what, what's kind of been your career path to get to a, one of the top level full time jobs you could ask for? So I um, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to be uh, when I was in high school. I thought, oh, well, I'll just be an architect. And but I was also interested in photography. I took a photo class in ninth grade and I was soon you know shooting for the yearbook. And so I shot a lot of sports because I sucked as an athlete and I'll be the first to admit that, but a lot of my friends played sport. And so it was a way for me to still hang out with them. And so when I was in 10th grade, my high school had this thing where they paired students with professionals in the field, you know, with certain interests. And so I was picked as one of the candidates and there were two photographers in town. I grew up in a really small town in Northern Minnesota, uh, Brainerd, Minnesota. Oh yeah. And, uh, I, yes, of course lost my accent, but I can bring it back when I need to. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, the two photographers that they approached, one was a studio photographer that had weddings and portraits. And the other photographer was the newspaper photographer. Um, the studio photographer was too busy, didn't have time to deal with a kid. And so, 
Um, the newspaper guy said, sure, come along. And so I shadowed him for a month, shot some assignments. And since most of the things that I could shoot were at night after school and on weekends, it was sports. And so, you know, it, and that kind of led to a job at the newspaper. So I was working at my town newspaper when I was in high school. Um, and so I just shot sports at night and regular assignments on the weekends. And, you know, so that's kind of how I got started in that. I went to the University of Minnesota for a year as a fully intending that I was going to still become an architect, whatever. And then I was working for the athletic department. I was freelancing for the Associated Press. And I thought, well, why am I going to school for something else? Clearly, this is something that I enjoy. And so the photo side of the journalism school at the University of Minnesota in uh, the early to mid 90s wasn't what it used to be. And so I was advised to look at other schools. And so I transferred to the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. And so I went to the J school there and I was kind of an anomaly for a lot of reasons, but mostly because a lot of the students that went there were into becoming newspaper photographers or documentary photojournalists. And here I was like, oh, I just want to shoot sports. And they were looking at me like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and so they couldn't figure me out and which is totally fine. Um, but I always thought that I would either end up working for a wire service or I would, you know, that covered everything or a newspaper. I mean, that's kind of when you were graduating in the mid to late nineties, that was kind of what the jobs were available. Or, I mean, certainly you could be a freelancer, but you know, people were going after staff jobs at newspapers and, and wire services. And I always figured that I'd kind of be of a jack of all trades photographer but I would shoot primarily sport or I'd like to find a job that covered primarily sports. So the internships that I did, you know, at the newspapers I did, I ended up shooting a lot of sport at night because, you know, you hire interns. So you're, you know, not only can you teach them something, but it's obviously it's, you can give your regular staff a break and make the kids shoot the night stuff, you know, <laughs> right. um, which is totally fine. But I also did an internship at a sport magazine called the Sporty News, which doesn't really exist anymore. At the time they were primarily, uh, they started out as a baseball publication. So they started in the like, the eight late 1800s as a baseball publication. And then, um, then they branched off into covering other sports and they started covering other sports about the time I became an intern. And so that was my real first taste of being a traveling sport photographer, because not only did I cover sports that were local to St. Louis, but they would, as an intern, they would travel me to cities like Chicago. So I go up to Chicago and do a weekend at, where I'd shoot a Bears game and there I'd shoot a college game before and then I'd shoot a Bears game or, you know, I'd go up and and I did baseball playoffs. My first World Series that I shot was actually for the Sporting News. It was cool. It was, it was Braves Cleveland in 1995. But I was, you know, the third photographer there. So obviously I wasn't always in a prime spot, you know, but it was cool. I got a great taste of what life was like. And I really liked that kind of, you know, intensity and you know, you just pick up your stuff and you go on to the next city. And so it was great, you know, and then after I did that internship, that really kind of sealed my fate of trying to find jobs that, you know, were either sport heavy or specific to shooting sports when I graduated um, college. So it was, uh, it was great. And it, it kind of, you know, someone had asked me about this before, about in college, what kind of sealed my fate to sport. And I'm sure you've heard this too, but so, so one of my, uh, classmates, we'll just say, made some comment that chicks can't shoot sports. And <laughs> that really pissed me off. And so I'm like, oh yeah, dude, I will show you. And so <laughs> I can say that I built my career out of spite. And um, so here I am almost 24 years later, uh, career built on spite. So when I was looking for jobs, I mean, I, I took a job in the at the Kansas City Star for a couple of months right after I graduated, but I was always searching for a sport job. So I was applying for team photographer jobs. I 
applied at this company called Allsport. And Allsport, if you don't know what that is, um, it was a boutique sport photo agency started in 1968 by a couple of English photographers. They didn't move into the United States until around the 84 Olympics when they opened up a lot, uh, an office in Los Angeles. And then when I was hired by Allsport in 96, we had a very small office in New York and the, the bigger office was in Los Angeles. And so if you were hired, I was hired as a junior photographer, which meant that I worked in the office during the day at either working in the lab or uh, processing film because that was still kind of the you know, few years of, of, of film. And then I would work the picture desk or I'd work research. And then at night I would go and shoot. And then when you went to bigger events, you were a second or a third photographer, but then you also had to develop film and edit for the senior photographers. And the idea being that as a younger photographer, you can, when you see someone's entire take, you see how they approach an assignment. And that was a really valuable you know, tool to be able to see how someone like Simon Broody would go to an assignment, even if it's just regular season NFL, and see how he covers the game and and what he does that's different than other people or what I would do. And so that was some really valuable information. Obviously, all sport was acquired by Getty Images in 1998. And we've kind of been under that umbrella ever since. But they kept the model of, all right, you know, these photographers just shoot sport. And then when they acquired like newsmakers and several other things, those companies kind of kept their, their photographers kept their identities of what they were shooting, yeah. if that makes sense. No, it does. Uh, I can only imagine that uh, the, that experience of being able to look through someone's entire take uh, at all. I mean, I know nowadays the only way to really do that is to work as a photo editor. So back then there was kind of this intermediary role of, uh, you know, the, the, the technical side of developing and all that stuff. Uh, what were some of the things that you would see when you're looking through someone's entire take that that you really kind of, I don't know, learn from or glean from from those moments? Yeah, there are some photographers that shot a lot more than others. And so the ones that I really admire were the photographers that had a lot of patience. And so instead of just blasting and motor driving through a play, you know, they'd wait until an opening would come and then they'd fire when they'd see. And then once they got blocked, then they'd stop shooting and then they'd pick up again when they using football as a reference, you know, shooting somebody carrying the ball. You know, obviously there's going to be a lot of bodies in the way. You know, some people just blast away through on the sequence, but, you know, a lot of the guys that I edited did not. And you could just see like, here's a quick burst, stop shooting. Then they, you know, where they picked up and they also, where they just hang on the play after it was over in case there was any sort of reaction instead of just immediately. First, when I started, there was, there was no digital, so it was all film. So you couldn't really have your instant gratification of looking on the back of a screen. So I think that kind of helped things in a lot of ways, but, um, and certainly too, like if you were shooting a day game, um, and if it was like late afternoon sun, there are some photographers that would stay on the normal positions um, and just shoot the game as they would, even if it were a cloudy day or night game. However, then there were other photographers that would say, you know what, I'm going to go play with some shadows and go chase the light. And so it was it was just kind of interesting to see two different ways of, of approaching uh, a game. And certainly demands for our images and, and time are different now than they were 20 years ago, obviously. So, you know, now I feel like everything is more immediate. So when I'm covering a game now, I'm required to or, or expected to produce a lot more imagery and get it out in almost real time. Whereas back when I was living in LA, I go shoot a Dodger game, you know, I'd shoot a few few innings of baseball and I'd go process film in about the third to fifth inning, depending on what time of day it was, and then transmit images and get like three or four out, you know, just, and then just go back to shooting the game and, and file at the end, you know, so I'd maybe send 15 to 20 pictures a game. Now I'm sending like 60 to a hundred, depending on 
you know, what the game is. And I'm also transmitting every half inning. So that's certainly different. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, to say uh, the least. And I think yeah. there's probably people listening right now that are just like their jaw just dropped. Because I think when they're when you're not allowed in this wire world, and I know when I came out of school, like I knew people in the wires like a little bit here and there from like, you know, college speakers and stuff like that. But I think when you actually get into an assignment or stand next to one of you guys, like the staffers, it's just like, holy shit. Like this is a different planet of work that's going on right now. Yeah. Not only are you trying to capture the game action and reaction of the story of the game that people are going to be writing about and talking about later that night, you know, the next day and what have you, you're also given a list of like, oh, hey, here's a list of players that are very popular and we get a lot of requests for. So you're also shooting stock and you're shooting portraits. You know, you're trying to find like the way the light hits somebody's face. So then that's why I started carrying a 600 to shoot football. Not only, you know, I like the way it looks from an end zone, but pregame and like stuff on the bench, you can get nice, tight kind of portraits of players with a six, you know, that you don't have to crop the bejesus out of or, you know, it's just... It's a different way of shooting and, you know, it just it kind of pushes you a little bit. So, yeah, no. And I, I think uh, that's actually I'll tell this story where uh, we met and I remember uh, we were at the Eagles game in Philly and I had not met you before. And, you know, hey, hi. Yeah, I'm working with you tonight. Yep. OK, cool. We kind of unpack and I had a two to four hundred or four hundred to eight. I can't remember. And I look over and I thought you had like a two hundred millimeter and a four hundred millimeter. I thought you had a 200 F2 and a 400. I'm like, oh, wow, that's really weird. And I looked harder and I'm like, oh, it's a 300 millimeter 2.8 and a 600 F4. And I was like, I looked over and I remember I remember exactly what I said because I thought about what to say because I said, I don't mean any disrespect because I know you're smarter than me. What the f*** is that set up? <laughs> and you just start laughing and you're like, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that kind of took the guard down, maybe, because I was like, I'm assuring you that I'm not being judgmental dude here. I'm being I don't know what that is and I want to learn. Well, and then I think playoff football, I end up kind of going back to the 400 because it's a different workflow. So you're working with other photographers. And so, for example, you know, playoffs this year, we typically would have four photographers on the field. So you end up kind of each duo works their sideline in a way that we always have one person hanging back in case there's a pick six. So you're a lot closer to the line of scrimmage versus saying, if you're at a game with two photographers where one person's on one side of the field and you're on the other, you can kind of work it however you want to. During the regular season, I like the, uh, I have a two to four, uh, or I, sorry, a, a 24 to 70 around my neck. I carry a 300 and a 600. And I'm kind of camping in the end zones a little bit more. I like that the whole field is opened up to you. Typically, your backgrounds are a little cleaner. And especially if you're shooting wide open with a six, it's compressing that crappy background. It's certainly at some stadiums on the East Coast like that I've grown to <laughs> get used to. I'm not a fan of MetLife. Sorry, at MetLife people. I'd rather go to Philadelphia because the backgrounds are better. It's all about the backgrounds. But with that being said, when they get into you know the, the red zone, I switched to the 300. I, I see there's a lot of people that use a 400 and a 7200 and something wide around their neck, which that's not a bad system or a, uh, that's not a bad setup. For me, what bugged me is the 7200. It just didn't look great in the red zone. And even at 200, everything was just a tiny bit loose. I didn't like the bokeh to be a snoot, you know, to be a snob, you know, here. <laughs> so that's why I kind of started using the 3028 because it compressed the background a little bit. It gave me the focal length that I that was great for about middle of you know the field or middle of the, the the end zone, 
to kind of a little bit towards me. And if they were right on me, well, I had the 24 to 70. It, the only thing that gets kind of tough for the 24 to 70 is that lately, the last couple of years, after a big play, whether it's defense or offense, they all do this group team picture. And if they're right up on you, the 24 is a little tight. But yeah. Um, but that's kind of, you know, I'll, I'll take it. I'd rather have, instead of doing a, like either a fixed, uh, you know, lens, like either a 50 or even something too wide, I like the capability of having that zoom at least to go to 70 or, or most of the time I set it at 50. And there've been times where I thought I might just get a straight 50. Uh, but then, you know, obviously when they're right on you and they're a little group shot, it gets a little tight. So that's why I've kind of opted for the 24 to 70. But I feel it's a good setup because from about like midfield, you know, a little beyond the midfield to about like maybe the 30, 20 to 30 yard line, the six is pretty great. It starts to get a little tight when they're coming at you. But the good thing about being in the end zone is, yeah, they're running kind of fast, but like I've had enough time to switch and you you kind of have to get used to wrangling all that gear, especially when you're covering a bigger game and there's not a lot of space. And so the newer lenses are a lot lighter. Um, I still have the version two of the 600, but it's still light enough that I can handhold it for most of the game. Yeah. Um, so I opt to go no monopod, have both the six, the six on one shoulder, the 300 on the other 24, 70 around my neck. And I feel like I'm pretty mobile. I can wrangle all that stuff pretty quickly and, and get what I need 90% of the time. Yeah. So anyone out there who follows me on Instagram, Elsa is completely the reason I shoot that setup. <laughs> uh, it's, shamelessly. It's yeah. That, that is where all of that came from. And, uh, I take, I, I take no problem with stealing that setup. It's super hard. I mean, you talk about it like it's super easy. I watched you shoot it and I was like, all right, fine, I'll do this. So at the end of the season, I sold all my stuff and I bought a six. And then this past season, the six, like I, I give it to dudes that are like sports dudes, like all time, full time sports dudes. And I'm not, I, I shoot a lot of sports, but it's not all I do. And, and so for me having a 600, it's pretty wild, but like I'll hand these dudes that are like 400 all the time. And they're like, dude, how do you shoot with this? It's so tight and it's so big. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, you just, uh, when, when you hit with it though, it's like a million bucks. Yeah, it's great. It's kind of separates you from a lot of the pack because your images are going to look differently because you're shooting them differently. Um, so I, I kind of feel like it's, it's a, it's a win-win for me anyway. I think, especially if you've been shooting for a long time, like, yeah, there's setups that work great. And maybe you bring those like tried and true reliable setups to playoffs, you know, when you know you need to get a wide variety of stuff and you can't miss anything. Regular season, you know, if I miss something because it's a little too tight, unless like it's like some monster mega story, it's regular season. At the end of the day, no one's going to crack, you know, gives a crap. But, yeah. you know, and that's the time for you to play and to, you know, kind of find you know, find some different angles, some different looks, you know, just so at the end of the year, you know, if you shoot 16, 18, whatever NFL games, they're not all going to look the same, which is what I'm trying to do. But, you know, at the end of the day, when I look at it, I was like, God, they all look the same, even with this now. And so yeah. now I got to figure out what I'm going to do. But yeah, slowly we'll just bring six, 400, 200, 300, 600. Just have like this whole pile of gigantic lenses at every game. I feel like there's this guy that used to cover golf and I can't remember what his real name is, but his nickname was Action Jackson. And <laughs> he looked like a Christmas tree with lenses all over him. And he had, he was, he would carry a three, four, five and a six with him around a golf course. Like it was ridiculous. Like, I don't, I just like, no, I'm, uh, I draw the line. <laughs> oh yeah. Some, yeah. Short of the that's newest, just too much. Short of the newest versions. I don't know how you carry two of those. Like they weigh so much, especially a few years that ago. Was the, yeah. That was, those were the old ones too, where it was heavy. Yeah. And You're talking it's a workout. Pounds. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so going back to, you know, when you're in college and, and leaving school and all of this, what were some of the challenges you were facing and what, how'd you overcome those challenges? I feel like the beginning of the career is so hard for everybody. Uh, and I'd love to hear what you kind of went and looked at. And I know the economy and the job market was different in the late nineties, but what were some of the challenges you were seeing and like, how are you overcoming those? You know, even when I graduated, then they were saying that photography and photojournalism was a dying industry. And so I've been hearing that for about 25 years. So, so that was kind of, you, you know, jobs were getting fewer and far between, between, it was definitely difficult finding a staff job and it's even more so now. I mean, there's a lot of jobs now that don't exist anymore. And then a lot of newspapers don't have the big staffs that they used to have and even with wire services. And so that was definitely a challenge. And so I think I took the first job I could get and the first job I got was to work in the bureau in Johnson County in Kansas for the Kansas City Star um, shooting community news. And I did that for about four months, five months. And I was applying for other jobs the whole time. You know, I was like, the, there was a team photographer job with the Timberwolves. I applied for that. I I had heard that Allsport had some openings and, and that was in October. And so I sent my stuff for that. You know, it's easier to find a job when you already have one, I guess. And <laughs> at least at least then you're not feeling that pressure of, of having to like take something else. And so I also did a research too of like, okay, where could I, you know, sustain a, a career as a freelancer if I needed to be, you know, um, there were some cities that had a lot of sports, but that had a lower cost of living than others. So moving cold turkey to New York City is not advisable, yeah. <laughs> I would say, or a place like San Francisco or Los Angeles where, or Boston even, where the rent is really high, unless you want to have a bunch of roommates. You know, I would look into finding a place where there are enough sport teams that things go year round or even enough news events, you know, obviously sport right now, you know, that's kind of difficult if you only shoot sport as a freelancer. There's, and there's a lot of people here in New York that do that, that are really struggling right now. And even news assignments aren't, aren't, uh, aren't that prevalent yeah. because a lot of places with staffs like, you know, the AP or, or with Reuters or even certainly us, they're using their sport photographers to shoot news. And so those news assignments aren't going to freelancers. Yeah. So it's, there's a lot of things that you got to weigh and where you kind of base yourself and what kind of quality of life you want to have and what, you know, what things that you like to do. It's not easy now. I, I don't know if, if I were going to a university now, I don't know. I, I, I would like to think that I would try do this job, but you know, I, it's kind of tough for me to tell people that are coming out that, oh yeah, there's, it's going to, I mean, it's a, it's an awesome career. It's a great career, but it's really difficult to break into now more than ever. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat it for people coming up saying, oh, well, this is an easy path. It's not an easy path because you are competing against a lot of other people that want to do the same thing. And it's one thing to be able to capture, you know, game action and the way that the cameras are now with, you know, the improvements in autofocus and, and all the technolo technological advances of our cameras. It's easy for people to do this job. It's harder to separate yourself from the rest of the pack. And I think that's what ultimately will get you hired at some places is if your stuff, if you're able to deliver on the basic stuff, but also show those images that are at a, a different level that show sport or news or entertainment, whatever you're doing in a way that no one else has shot before, which is very hard to do. Yeah, hugely, hugely difficult. And I think um, another thing that when it comes to differentiating yourself, you know, and especially when you get to the higher level sporting events, you're you're kind of pigeonholed into a certain area. 
you know, you don't ha- you don't have freedom to go wherever you want. I know when I cover UFC, you have to. It says in the credential rules, the only place you can shoot is from your assigned position, which makes complete sense. I mean, there's nowhere else to go. But, you know, good luck. You can't go get a stadium overall. You can't you can't go up in the catwalk. You can't shoot it from all these different angles that maybe another sport would let you, which I actually not to say anything bad about UFC. I actually love covering UFC and think they're one of the most professional organizations. So I'm totally great with it. But it's one of those things that like if you were at a local MMA or whatever boxing, you'd probably have a lot more freedom to get up in the rafters, get up in the crowd, things like that. So I think that's something that people lose. I think I think I'm sure you get this a lot. Like people want to come do the professional sports. They want to come do the top level things. What do you say to those people that like just just think it's like, oh, basically you have the best seat and you must have the best job ever? Well, there's part of that. Yes. But obviously the level of competition is going to be better at, you know, the higher you, you go. But you're also more restricted. So if I'm shooting a college baseball game versus a major league baseball game, there are a lot more angles and places that I can go in a college game than I could, let's say at Yankee stadium. And also every stadium is different. So for example, at most ballparks, you can kind of wander in and go shoot upstairs and do, you know, find different angles, not at Yankee stadium. You are only allowed in designated photo areas. And there are, you know, two spots on the field or, or two, you know, either first or third based dugout field level. And then there's, um, I think one elevated spot now. And and sometimes you can go to center field if you get permission, but the thing even there on opening day, when you want to shoot the wide stadium overall, you need to be escorted by security. And there are some football stadiums like that too. And in new England at Foxborough, you can't go up and wander in the stands like you can, like say in Philadelphia or, you know, any other NFL stadium, you have to request that access at least a week in advance and you need to be escorted. So it gets harder to be creative. And so, yes, you are like standing next to, you know, six other photographers, like all right in a row. How are you going to differentiate yourself? Well, that's when you start looking at, okay, what lens am I going to shoot with today? Or you have to plan a a lot more than say, you know, going to a game that will give, or a sporting event that will give you carte blanche, you know, free access, you know, to go wherever you want. You can go shoot up in the stands, you can shoot different angles. And so then you, you get a little more chance to play. Whereas when I'm at Yankee stadium, I know I can go one of three places. And then, so I have to plan It's like today, I'm going to shoot from this first base side. I'm going to have, you know, a 400 and a 7,200 and I'm going to take, you know, my 14 with me, you know, or something. And then, so you have a plan in your head of what, what's going to happen. So you think, okay, if some Somebody hits a home run or a grand slam, I'm going to shoot this way first and then pick up this lens next. So you got to know that ahead of time. You can't, there's not enough time for you to say, oh, well, that looks nice. I think I will grab my wide lens now. You, you got to be ready for it. And I think that's the difference too of shooting a major, major league sport is that not only is your access going to be limited, but you're competing with a lot more of the photographers for space and you're not going to have the room to kind of play and do what you want to do. So you really need to be a lot more deliberate in your photography, I would say. Yeah. Is that a, a fair assessment? No, I think that's 100% true. I think uh, I, I built my portfolio on high school sports. I started at RIT shooting sports because uh, some pretty smart people were like, hey, even the best documentary photographers, you know, probably shoot sports. And I was like, nah, that's BS. And the person that was talking was like, I used to shoot high school football with so and so. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, okay, maybe I should learn this stuff. You know, I guess that's 
you know, I, did, I wanted to be a news photographer. So I was like, I guess I'll learn it. And then as I started to apply for internships, it was like a necessary evil. Like, you know, like you said, they're going to have, if you go to apply to an internship, you're probably going to be working nights and weekends because the people that are in the career and a few years in, they don't want to work at seven o'clock or 10 o'clock at night on Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays. They want to be home with their family or going out or doing whatever they do. So, uh, so I mean, it was pretty obvious I needed to shoot some sports. So I got okay enough to get an internship where I then of course shot a lot of sports and uh, I think I shot my first NFL game with a mostly high school football portfolio and it's been that way ever since and I think you're completely right that I think people they don't put enough emphasis on the fact of how much freedom you have versus shooting like a college or professional sport where there's all of a sudden like an entire full sideline security guards uh athletes you know you you can't shoot from behind the bench at any of these and i bet at a high school game if i went to one in most towns in the country i could probably do whatever i wanted (laughs) i could probably run it i could probably run up and down the bench if i wanted to so and then they'd be happy to have you and you know, that's, that's kind of the, the different thing, I think, or the difference too, is, you know, sometimes you get to some of these bigger markets and it's just, uh, you, you know, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I think the thing that you can learn from shooting sports is it, it forces you to solve problems because every stadium, every venue is different and every place has its own set of rules. And so you got to work within those rules to do your job. Um, but also it forces you to be on your toes. So your timing gets better. Um, so when you go to a documentary situation or a new situation, you know, things that develop quickly in front of you, you can react and respond quickly because you have those reflexes built in from shooting sport. Yeah. I think. No, I totally agree. That was a big thing I picked up on. I, my backgrounds got cleaner. Uh, my compositions got cleaner, uh, because you're trying to isolate those players on the field. And now when I go shoot with my 35 or my 24 or whatever, uh, shooting a news assignment, I know like, okay, I got to put this person in this pocket here because that's going to be a cleaner frame that's like easier to read. And there's things the other direction too. You know, I would take lessons from, uh, you know, my reportage style shooting and bring it to football and stuff as well. But I think the biggest thing to learn is uh, the fact that like just working with that equipment and how many doors it can unlock. I think a lot of people that don't shoot sports have very little familiarity with these big lenses, uh, even a 300. But, you know, holding even a 400.56, like one of those little zooms, framing a shot at 300 to 400 millimeters and being able to be comfortably aim and get a tight shot of something or a detail is amazing like you look at all those political ph- photographers in dc right now some of them work with these bigger longer lenses and the stuff they're getting is incredible yeah yeah i think i think and i think it's totally crossover though because i think a lot of them were able to finally fit a 100 to 400 in their bag but what are, what are some things like uh, yeah i guess you know you can go on that I think, too, once you get used to working with your equipment, the more you work with it, the more you know with it, it more it becomes like a part of your part of you. Like, you know, I feel like I can pick up any of my my gear and it's just like an extension of me. And especially shooting tighter with like, you know, telephotos of four or five and a six, the more you get used to shooting with it, the more, you know, like when someone when your subject is moving within the frame, how you can best follow it and not cut off important limbs, you know, like their head, you know, like if, if someone, if you're shooting something tight and they're jumping up, it takes a while to get used to, okay, I know they're going up how, you know, so you don't move the camera and the lens up too high. You got to kind of keep it at the same speed at what they're jumping. And it's also, you know, like when you're shooting panning in motorsports, when you're shooting at a slow shutter speed, you have to move at the speed 
of the subject that you're following. And so it's the same thing, but you're just using a higher shutter speed, yeah. you know, when you're shooting with a longer lens. But I think a lot of the stuff that coming out of, out of DC with all the political stuff, it's really interesting. You can look at some of the, the stuff that people are shooting. You could tell that they're using a, a telephoto shooting wide open with the way, like the lens, like the bokeh, the feel of it. Um, it's some of it has been really incredible, honestly. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, you know, my coworker Chips Motivia has been knocking it out of the park and, you know, always Doug Mills from the New York Times. He crushes it every time he, you know, he goes out to shoot. Um, those two guys, um, you know, I see a lot of great, great pictures from, you know, oh, and I yeah. think, uh, you know, Jabin from the Washington Post has been really making some nice stuff. Um, you know, it's uh, and Tom Brenner. You know, I don't know if you know Tom. Oh, I know um, Tom. Yeah, yeah, he's he's been doing nice work, too. Yeah. You know, it's. It's really cool to see what they're what they're coming up with, you know, when you kind of think of you you would think that, you know, oh, covering politics is probably very boring. Not not a, they they don't make it, yeah, you know, they make it look great. You know, they look at like, wow, they're having such a great time covering this stuff, you know. But uh yeah, yeah it's it's kind of cool to see all the stuff coming out of DC right now. And I think actually uh I think that challenge is similar for you. Like so these people in DC are covering, you know, the president, you know, so for four to eight years they cover the same person doing the same thing and roughly the same with the Senate, you know. I mean, these are the same buildings, roughly the same people. Um, but the same could be said about sports. So you cover I I, I don't even want to know how many sporting events you cover a year, but as full time. You're talking hundreds of sporting events, and that could be 70, 80 baseball games. That could be 15, 20, 30 football games. I'm sure, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 hockey games. Like, like you're doing the same thing over and over. I know playoffs are different, but uh, looking at regular season stuff, like, how do you keep variety in something, especially year to year? I mean, you're 20 some odd years in. Like, how do you keep variety? How do you keep finding new ways to get inspired and look in a new way? Sometimes it's it's all about the matchup. So if you're covering a game that has a very historic matchup like for baseball let's say yankees red sox or maybe yankees astros that could be interesting this year for example i'm covering the knicks a lot here in new york and they're not fun to cover because they're terrible i hate to say it but it's also you know so that that becomes a story in itself you know trying to show how terrible these people are or you know like or how like they're they're not playing you know together as much or i don't know so then it becomes about more about who's coming to town you know, like, oh, well, they're playing the Lakers. Well, okay, this is who I'm going to focus on because they're the better team, you know, and especially if they blow them out. And so you have a game plan going in there and saying, I know they're not going to do well. I need to get sad pictures. And and so I'm looking throughout the game to get sad Knicks players, you know, uh, or just frustrated, you know, uh, reacting to a, a bad call or something. And so you go in there with a list of things that you you want to come out with and kind of that helps you. And in your head, you're checking off all this list. And then it's certainly personality driven. So, you know, if a, a team's coming to town that has a, a really fun player to shoot, you know, you get excited to shoot this person. When I'm shooting baseball, like if I have four baseball games in a week. They're all different games. And so there are some, yeah, that are a little more exciting than others. And so sometimes I think, well, I've gone to <laughs> gone to it with, I'm just going to shoot with one lens today. And I just like, I'm just going to shoot with my 400 or I'm just going to shoot with a 600 and whatever happens, happens. And if I get burned, I get burned, you know, but it, then that forces you to be a little more creative, you know, or you could say, all right, I'm going to shoot the bread and butter with this, but Instead of going to a 70 to 200, I'm going to shoot every time they round first base with a 35, you know, or I'm going to mostly what I'll do is the, I'll spend the first few innings getting the stuff that I need. And then the middle innings is when I play. So I can decide I'm going to shoot a little bit tighter 
for these innings, or I'm only going to shoot reaction pictures or, or, or try and get portraits in the dugout, you know, if it's a blowout. Yeah. So it, you kind of have to follow the pace of the game and the story of the game working as a wire photographer. But when you have those opportunities of like, okay, I got everything that I need for now in the bag, it's time to play. And so then if it's a day baseball game, and it's a stadium where you can go chase the shadows for a couple innings, go chase the shadows for a couple innings. It looks different. You have a different angle. You know, your backgrounds are a little cleaner because you got nothing but the field. Let's say you know that shooting at one side of the stadium during a, a sunny day game, later in the day, it's going to be backlit. So you have that nice kind of halo effect. Um, so then you just go on that side and you shoot from that side, even though it might not be a preferred side to get game action. So you just, you have to read the situation and figure out, okay, how am I going to make this look a little bit different than all the night games that I've been shooting this week? Yeah. And you know, or even if you're shooting night games, like, okay, you see, you can tell when a, a photographer is getting a little bored because all of a sudden you see all those quarter of a second baseball <laughs> pitching pictures or, you know, which, Sometimes like, it's like, okay, it's just blur. You gotta like, I mean, it needs to have something sharp in there. And that's always been my big beef with some of them. I'm just like, there's not even a sharp thing. It's just like, it looks like an accident and you're just like, oh, I kind of like it. And you send it. And so for me, when I'm going to do something like that, it's going to be very deliberate. And so it's, there are certain pictures, like the way they move, there's a sweet spot where their face doesn't move. And so that's when you want to, if you want to have their arms all blurry, but you want their face to be sharp. There's like that, that sweet spot, you know, like Randy Johnson was good. He was, uh, he pitched for the Yankees. He pitched for the Diamondbacks. He pitched for Seattle. Yeah. Um, my, uh, friend, uh, Doug Penzinger had the best picture of him. His was the best because his face is sharp. He found that sweet spot where his arm is in motion. The rest of his body is in motion and his face is, is pretty sharp. It doesn't always work for every pitcher. There's, you could tell two people start playing with a multiple exposure on their camera. And, <laughs> um, and that's a different way of shooting too. It's not like, Oh, I'm just going to say for, um, pictures in the frame, you have to be very deliberate in how you shoot that because you need not only like a clean enough background to where you could see the separation, but you have to, as you're shooting, you have to move the camera a certain way to get separation, especially if that person is stationary. So if you're shooting, let's say a gymnast on a a beam and you want to get that movement, you can just keep your camera in the same position because that gymnast is going to move across that beam. If you're shooting a picture, pitcher, he's not moving from the mound much. He's like maybe going forward a little bit. So if you don't move your camera as you're shooting to have a little bit of separation, it's just going to look like a bunch of images all on top of each other. Yeah. So when you're playing around with different techniques like this, you know, these are all these things that I would say that you have in your toolbox. You can, you know, let's say that you want to have a little bit more depth of field to, let's say you have a, a lineup of three guys, you know, all staying next to each other. If you're shooting wide open, one guy's going to be sharp, the other two are going to be blurry. Yeah. So if you want them all relatively sharp, obviously you have to increase your F-stop to get more depth of field. So that's something you you know in your back of your head. That's, that's what I need to do. Or if it's bright and sunny out and you want to do like the star flare thing with the sun, you know <laughs> that you got to stop your lens all the way down to like F22 or F32 as far as you can go and shoot it that way. So then it'll star out. You know, it, it, there's all these little technical things that you can have in your, in your toolkit, I like to say, whether it's shooting at a very high shutter speed to freeze the action, whether it's shooting at a very slow shutter speed to show movement. There are all these things that you can do to kind of mix it up. You know, certainly you can get guys running around the base shooting at a quarter of a second, or you can 
you know, shoot it at 2,000 of a second. It depends on what you're trying to show and what you're trying to do. I've shot tennis at like quarter of a second or to a 40th of a second, depending on how, what I was trying to, to, to do. And it just kind of depends on what you're feeling that day, I guess. I guess to get off the technical a little bit, do you think that there are, are things you see a lot in the industry either photographically or otherwise, um, that are maybe pet peeves or things that you wish people pay less attention to or more attention to. Um, like, so when I see a lot of those type of photos, I think like, I, like one thing in sports right now I see from a visual standpoint is like a lot of people are really good at getting like, like the not action. So, you know, people come out of the tunnel, uh, you know, people standing for the anthem. Like there's a lot of like this, like showmanship of the sports and that's really great. That's really awesome. But I feel like recently I've seen a lot less people get that like totally slamming peak action. So that would be like my like little sports photography pet peeve lately. And and, and those other photos get a lot of likes because I think people are really like a public as large really likes that like the, the celebrity of sports athletes right now. So it's it's conducive to that. Um, but do you see things like that in the industry or anything um, that just kind of maybe gets you going that you're like, man, I really wish <laughs> I really wish we'd stop doing this or I wish we would do more of this or something. Well, certainly like people are using their fish eye way too much. That drives me <laughs> up the freaking wall. You know, and there's sometimes when a fish eye is warranted. And so I use my fish eye a lot, like in when I'm doing a net cam in hockey, for example, because, you know, there's not a lot of space and I, I want to get as much information in the frame as I can. And and there, there's that eight to 15 uh, that Canon makes. Not a fan. I don't like the big circle, you know, but it, it has its purposes. So, you know, a couple of years ago, I think Rob Carr uses it at the Kentucky Derby on the um, on the gate when the, the horses come running out because you need something wide where, where that is. And it has its purposes. What drives me nuts is definitely, uh, the show slow shutter speed with nothing sharp in it, where it's just a, it looks like a mistake. <laughs> and then the people send it. It's like, Oh, well, this is so lovely. I'm like, it's not lovely. Um, <laughs> so that drives me a little insane. But th- the thing that I often tell photographers, especially coming out and, you know, people coming out of college, they shoot their first pro game. And they put a picture in, oh, well, you know, this is Mike Trout. Yeah, but Mike Trout's just standing on first base. This should not be in your portfolio. Like maybe if you're shooting for a publication that wants this picture or is doing a story about Mike Trout, then that would be fine. But as a portfolio, at the end of the day, it's just a guy standing there. It's kind of like the same people who shoot pictures of the president standing behind a podium and put that in their portfolio. Well, it's just a guy behind a podium. You know, it's not like, you're bringing anything to the table. It's just like, you're like, Oh, there it is. You know, click done. Got it. And just, so the thing that kind of drives me a little crazy is especially in portfolio editing is like, is it a nice picture on its own or is it just, it's because of it's this guy or this woman, you know, like if you're, you're putting something in portfolio at the end of the day, it's like, it's, it's, it's a person behind a podium that doesn't really take a lot of thought to cover it. Unless you show me a different way to shoot a picture behind a podium, you know? Um, you can, you can certainly look at all the political coverage and all the rallies and stuff and see all the photographers that are really working hard to show a different angle instead of just like the straight on, you know, telephoto lens person standing on base or at least make it interesting. Like make it, wait for a moment, wait for a smile, wait for like, you know, some interaction with somebody else, wait for the light to hit them on, you know, a certain way on their face. If you're trying to make a portrait, that kind of drives me a little insane. But I also think as far as like action pictures, I'm sorry, you opened up a can of worms. Um, <laughs> but when certain things that play better on Instagram than they do in real life, like, yeah. so because you're looking at on a mobile device, the things that have more impact are probably the tighter pictures because you're looking at a smaller screen. And so sometimes the subtle pictures get lost on social media, which I don't know if you would say that would be a fair assessment no, or not. I think, but. It's, 
I think about it while I shoot to that matter and while I edit, because I know that there's pictures, you know, I'm not going to act like I'm old person that came from the world of print, but in the <laughs> sense that like when I was in school and when I started out, things went to the paper, things went onto websites that were bigger. And I generally, and I'm, I like subtlety. I like subtlety in my work. I like subtlety in a lot of things. And whether that be a tonality or whether that be a composition and when sports photography comes around, I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to make a dynamic photo that you can really spend some time looking at on a two inch wide screen. I mean, I used to go to college exactly. yeah, and I was in college. I'd go to the library and look at photo books. And I remember, you know, professor said like, go look at the books, like go, you know, we have a big library, go, go look at the actual books of these things, whatever I'm showing you in class. And so I tried to do that between classes or when I had a lunch break or something. And I remember like when you actually set down a book and split it open and looked at things like you could really like look and spend time looking around that picture and like understanding the subtleties of the composition. And I, I totally will have photographs from sports, news, anything that I absolutely love. And I'm like, I know if I put this on Instagram, like no one will see it. Like, it's just like you can't read it. But I never thought of it that way, that like that there's a reason that people that are popular on Instagram when it comes to sports, that's that's that is part of it. I mean, that's part of those setup photos and those details and things like that is that they read really well. Exactly. And I think that has also kind of changed the way that we cover things now. And those pictures that you could spend a lot of time with and get lost in are lost on social media or even in photo contests for that matter. Because if you can't read everything in a split second, no one's going to pay attention to it. And that's, that's kind of sad, you know, yeah. to me, I, I still try and make those pictures, but I know that primarily when I'm shooting, the audience is looking for things with impact and whether it's emotional impact or whether it's peak action and tight and in your face. And that's kind of how I see it's kind of changing towards that in a lot of different aspects of photography, you know, it, and just because of how it plays on devices. And there are some things, there are still some print, there are some outlets for those pictures that you can spend some time with. But a lot of the things that I'm transmitting for on deadline, those pictures aren't necessarily going to get any play. Whereas yeah. all, all the, the, the peak action and the reaction tight, clean, reads well in a vertical or horizontal format those are, are going to get used more so. And so then you start shooting that way. And, you know, that's it's just kind of where things are kind of going. So I, I hope that it doesn't completely kill the picture that's more subtle and that, you know, that you that you set a scene with, you know, that's that's kind of my worry, honestly. Yeah, no, I do too. And I, like I said, I think about it quite a bit while I'm working, you know, and I think there's a certain amount of time you spend with things. And even if like you're looking at something a while, it's just like you just can't understand the complexities of those more nuanced photos, so to speak. So that, that becomes difficult. And I'm sure it's with all types of photography, not just sports and, um, you know, even advertising yeah. and things. I mean, advertising, you, you have to be very quick because it's something people don't want to look at. So, uh, yeah. so to speak. So you have done so many things. I mean, you've been to the Olympics, you've been to the world series, you've been to super bowls, uh, you've been to all kinds of stuff. Um, but I thought with the Olympics getting delayed this year, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about what goes into covering Olympic Games. And also, Getty is the IOC partner. And so that means that you all are the official photographers of the Olympics, so to speak. Yep. Um, so I was wondering, what, what goes into that process personally? And then also, you know, as part of your company, like what goes into covering Olympic Games? Well, it depends on on what you're doing, obviously. And so Winter games, there are less events and they usually wrap up a little sooner. So, and they're, I think they are two or three days shorter than the summer games. So summer games events run till like two in the morning. I remember, you know, shooting stuff in, in Rio 
and sprinting to catch that 2 a.m. bus back to the you know, the media village or whatever. The winter games, everything wraps up usually around midnight. You know, you're in the bar by 1230. So, <laughs> you know, the important things. Um, so for us, you know, yes, we are, you know, image, uh, the IOC official photographers. So what that means for us and Tokyo is, you know, even though it's postponed a year um, and then, um, this year was going to be our biggest operation yet. And so we have two sets of photographers. We have the editorial photographers that work, you know, to produce images for newspapers, magazines, websites on the wire side. And then we have the IOC, what we call the sponsor team photographers, and the, they work on the commercial brief and fulfill the needs of our commercial clients and the IOC. Those photographers will have different access than what I would have as an editorial photographer. Um, I've shot on the sponsor team before. It was like a winter games, a, a couple, couple winter games back. Um, and so I had different access. Um, so I could go into you know, more family areas, more, you know, different athlete areas than editorial photographers could go to because, but that was because I would have a shot list of things like, okay, McDonald's is paying us X amount of dollars to shoot, you know, their signage in this arena this way or with this athlete. And so you have a different set of responsibilities and it's a different way of looking at it. And you're producing images that they're going to use as part of their backdrop for the the next Olympics. And so it, that's a different way of covering than going to, you know, a uh, velodrome event and shooting it editorially versus on the commercial side or even athletics or basketball or volleyball, any of it. Going in, you know, if you're doing one thing versus the other, you have a different mindset and you're bringing the same gear for the most part, but you might be using, you know, shorter lenses on the commercial side of things because you're trying to capture atmosphere. You're trying to capture all the stuff that's on the, on the list. But if you're shooting editorially, you're bringing everything um, because Getty images like Reuters and AFP and the AP were all part of the international press pool. So the international press pool photographers are in priority positions. And so meaning that, you know, let's say you're going to cover the Olympics for the New York Times and I'm covering it as part of the international press pool. I'm going to have access to different locations than you will based on the color of my vest. And so with that, you know, comes a responsibility of having to it's, to get uh, get those different images. But that's not to say that people that have the regular vest can't get great images. They certainly can. There's a lot of, you know, places that you guys can go that produce great images. I mean, just look at everything that, you know, Doug Mills would come back with, you know, and oh, he's, yeah. you know, he's, he's in the regular crowd and we're <laughs> in the, I, you know, the IOPP crowd and he's kicking, kicking ass and taking names. So, but we also, with that in mind, we have a team of editors there. We are, all of our cameras are tethered. Most of it is being, you know, edited in real time. You know, I take back to um, the last Olympics when, you know, Bolt was running. There's that picture of Cam Spencer's that went everywhere, of, you know, a pan blur from the infield of him kind of looking, you know, looking back. We had that picture out in like 88 seconds or something crazy like that. It's 88 you know, seconds it's, from when the picture was taken for anyone taking yes. notes at home. Yes. And so the guy from Reuters had the nearly the exact same picture. Our picture was out first and that's why it went everywhere. It's more about speed at the Olympics as far as like image captioning, cropping and sending. And so our team of editors is working harder or just as hard, if not harder than us capturing all, all that content. Yeah. I mean, certainly there were some smaller sports like that I did, like, so I shot handball. And so I edited my own handball pictures. Um, 
if you've never shot handball, it's the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> the first match I ever did was Poland versus Germany, the men's side. And that was the most testosterone laced thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I've covered a lot of things. Um, and they, they, they they score like 30 goals a game and they celebrate every single goal. Like they won the whole thing. It's amazing. And it's some, you know, that's what I like about the Olympics is that there are all these sports that I don't get the opportunity to cover here in the States or during the regular season, what have you. And so when you go to Olympics, you're exposed to so many different things. And even though you've never shot through sports before, you use all the tools that you've learned problem solving in other arenas and other sports and you figure it out and you, you make it work. So going into Olympics, just know that you're working 12 to 15 hour days for the duration of the Olympics. Some agencies, and we did this for one summer games, like the the 2012 Olympics in London, I shot primarily indoor volleyball. So the first 10 days of the Olympics, there were uh, six matches a day, I believe. And, um, and then it whittled down to like only like three or, you know, four or whatever. And then it was easier. But when it was all said and done, I think, you know, I, I was kind of pulled off volleyball to do a couple other things. So at the end of the Olympics, I probably only shot like 69 volleyball matches in my time there, but only, you know, it, yeah. So it gets kind of like, it, that's definitely Groundhog's Day. I mean, you're there from when they open at nine and you're running to catch that 2am bus after the last match. And you're just like, oh my gosh, it's a different kind of grind. And you have to mentally prepare yourself that you're just going to be exhausted. How are you going to deal with the exhaustion, the mental exhaustion, not, you know, including the physical exhaustion, but, you know, cause you're always on and it's, you know, it's like, go, go, go. And whereas when you're covering a regular season event, like, you know, especially baseball, you know, there are, there are times when you're just really intense and you're shooting a lot and then you're transmitting a little bit and then there's little lulls in the game. And, but the Olympics, it's just, you're just on all the time and you're just always like looking around and, and trying to make sure that you don't miss anything. And so, yeah, that, you know, at the end of it, you're just spent, you're just completely spent and you, you know, need to take at least a, a week to decompress. So I've, I've done one Olympics so far. I did the 2018, uh, uh, South Korea Winter Olympics, but I was doing video. So I actually got the even better spots than you guys got. Yeah. <laughs> Evidently the video spots are pretty coveted. So I was uh, working yep. for a network. So uh, I remember one hockey game or uh, speed skating, I think. And I just was like, I walked up and there was like tons of photographers all pinned in these spots. And I look over and I'm like, oh man, there's no spots left. And then someone was like, no, you got a whatever green vest. Yeah, like, you can go oh, that, wherever you want. That's over here. And it was it was like it was like if you walk into like a restaurant and there's, you know, just like this like McDonald's front end and you walk in the back and it's Ruth Chris Steakhouse. It was yep. like it was like you turn around, and you're like, oh, I'm directly yeah. in the line. Exactly the shot I want. <laughs> it's like, oh, come over here. Yeah. Let me move this rope for you. Oh, here you go. You know, here's uh, here's your lounger exactly. yeah it was so it was so bad and then we we actually had like getty had a huge office there i went over and checked out the photo side of things and i went and said hi to some of the editors i know at getty and new york times and ap and stuff and uh but i, I went back over to the broadcast center which is where all the networks are based and they like literally have a built-out city inside of this building like nbc had a building that was I don't know, the size of three football fields inside of yeah. a building. It was it was like insane. We had catered meals. All the meals were catered all day, every day. Like every four hours, there was a meal. Um, there were snacks and drinks at all times. They had a full 360 degree LED room that they were like they project all the walls. They didn't use green screen. They just had it like on a screen like because the floor was a screen. So why not? I was like, this is crazy. It was absolute insanity on the broadcast side of things. The amount of money network spend. To cover those sports at the Olympics. I, I can't imagine what they're all doing right now, knowing that they delayed their income by a year. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, that's same with us too. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. So, you know, I think, you know, next year will be crazy. And then I think when sports start up after, you know, we kind of make it through this pandemic, it could get interesting because if NHL starts up, an NBA startup, they're going to have shortened seasons and boom, you're into playoffs. Major League Baseball, same. it's going to be, you know, they're going to have a very condensed baseball season. So that's going to be like every game is is going to count. It's going to be like three playoffs, going, three playoff leagues going on at the same time when that all starts up. It could get kind of fun, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It'll be, it'll be interesting. I'm hoping I get phoned in to like come take one of those spots. That's my... I have my fingers crossed that hopefully it's like, we're just overwhelmed. We need to pull in this loser from Tennessee. <laughs> no, uh, or you could, well, you could be a, a backup goalie at the, for the NHL. So I'm you know. big enough. So I should be, I'll block half the goal. Just stand there. I'm six, three. I'll just, just yeah, lay down. I, mean, I got the bottom half covered. That's that kinda... was a great story. And I'm so glad that the, the NHL was smart enough not to change that uh, rule where like the, the rando, like every arena has to produce a, a third string, goalie oh, you know yeah 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 he got that was so cool he got five hundred dollars and the jersey i think that was like that was the that's the official nhl rule on how you are paid is you get five hundred dollars and the jersey and what's what's kind of interesting is like so he secured a win for the opposing team <laughs> yeah um so i'm sure he had a lot of mixed feelings about that certainly I, the but, crowd gave him a standing ovation i read so yeah i think they that, did, i think yeah. everyone's just like a fan of hockey at that point which is pretty awesome i love hockey so much i think it's a whole different planet of fandom especially yes. in canada i'm sure oh yeah it's it's cool like you know i remember covering playoffs in you know ottawa and playoffs in toronto a long long time ago and it was just a great environment you know it was just it was a lot of fun yeah it's uh well and actually the last actually the last playoffs i did was winnipeg and i hadn't been up to winnipeg in a while and it was just as i remembered it, it just as lovely and but it was crazy you know every fan in that arena had a jersey on they were all waving their t- and it was just a great environment it was just like so electric you couldn't help but get kind of swept up into it and yeah. so that's what i love about playoffs specifically but certainly certainly hockey and i used to live in boston so i'd cover bruins games and bruins fans would fill that place every night covering some of the bigger rivalries in hockey which i wasn't exposed to you know like when the flyers would come to town versus when the canadians would come to town and it's amazing to see how those teams just do not like each other. And the fans <laughs> of those teams do not like each other. Like hockey is just a different thing. And it was it was really cool to see the first time I shot a Rangers game at Madison Square Garden. You know, my friend Alex Trotwig, who works for Major League Baseball, he's a huge hockey fan, loves the Rangers. And we would have bets, you know, um, uh, during certain games. Um, but that's another side story. But he used to say that, oh, the atmosphere at the Bruins is nothing. Everything's better at Madison Square Garden. And I was like, ah, you're full of crap. And so the first time I covered a Rangers game, you know, they were playing the Flyers and it was a pretty, uh, you know, electric atmosphere. And I was like, all right, I'll give you some, you know, it's, yeah. it's pretty good, you know, yeah. and that was just regular season. That was not, not playoffs at all. Um, playoffs, it was in a whole different ball of wax and it was, <laughs> it's really cool. Like it's, it's really great to see. So I have one last question before I get into like what I've been calling like the final three questions. I think there's an interesting dynamic between our world as sports photographers, fans, and then athletes. We're kind of in this limbo world where I think one side maybe sees us more as fans. And I think the fans kind of see us as having a closer relationship with the players. So I was thinking maybe you could talk about that dynamic and what it's like being inside the bubble, so to speak, but still being an outsider. Yeah, because, you know, people that aren't in this business, you know, friends of mine that are that do other things like, oh, well, do you they think that I socialize with these players? I don't, you know, 
they don't, they couldn't pick me up out of a police lineup. It, you know, it's, they're in their own little world and I'm just taking pictures of them in that world. So when people ask what I do, I, I really just watch people do things. Is what I do. <laughs> um, but I think that the most interaction that I've had with players is baseball because you're um, shooting spring training photo days. And so you have those portrait connections. And then when you cover a team a lot more, like they'll see you and they'll say hi, but it's not like, you know, I know what, what uh, Aaron Judge is, is doing on a Tuesday night. I have no idea. But when we're at the baseball game, he's very cordial. Hey, how's it going? You know, very nice. And um, I think that I have more interaction with baseball players than I would say NBA or NHL or MLS for that matter. The most I ever talked to anybody with the NBA is I've done the rookie shoot for the last like three years, which happens about every August where all the NBA newly drafted rookies uh, show up in their new team uniforms. And there are all these like portrait stations. And so I have one of them and I get about like a minute with each of these guys. And I, you know, and so there's some players that are, have, are into photography. And so you have that kind of connection that you can build at, you know, DD Gregorius of the, the Phillies now uh, used to be on the Yankees. He has like a Sony a nine. He's really, and so he would walk around at photo days with a camera. And so he would take pictures of his teammates getting in the photo stations, but it was kind of interesting. Um, and he actually went with, there was a, that photo expo photo plus at, at Javits in October and yeah. so he was walking around, kind of checking that out with uh, my friend Ari and, and I. And that's kind of like the only real connection that I've had. There's there's a couple other guys that are photographers, too. Like Howie Kendrick is really into street photography. The team photographer from the Dodgers, when he was with the Dodgers, got him kind of hooked on that. And so he, he's he got a Leica. And there's a couple of guys that have Leicas, which is really kind of weird to see baseball players walking around with, you know, the, the greatest Leica. Um, <laughs> yeah. And understand, know how to use it. I, you know, I have more connection with those players because we have a, something to talk about that's in common. But for the most part, you know, that's what I liked about sport. You know, certainly when I started, is I'm very shy and don't want to talk to anybody. So, like, so you you go to a game, you just like you can hang, you can you can shoot an entire game and not really talk to anybody, and that's a, a glorious thing. And so I could I could do my job. I could go home without speaking to anybody. Now I'm kind of more of a social butterfly, but it's taken a long time. <laughs> but initially, for about like the first five, six years, I was just like terrified of, of most these most these players. And, you know, it's just like in football games. I, I covered a lot of Tom Brady's career, but yet I'm, you know, people think that, oh, well, do you know Tom Brady? No, I don't know Tom Brady. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I've taken many pictures of him and and I don't even think he could spot me, you know, pick me out of a, you know, a lineup either, you know, yeah, and I exactly. wear the same bright neon pink hat every time I cover playoffs, you know, like there's no way that, uh, or, or when Kobe Bryant had passed, you know, there were friends of mine, it's like, oh, well, you covered the Lakers a lot early in your career. Like, oh, I'm really sorry, you know, that you lost your friend. I'm like, I, I don't know Kobe Bryant. Like, yeah, you know, like yeah. there are some photographers that do and that have those relationships with athletes. And a lot of them are team photographers, but yeah. from as a wire service photographer, you know, I'm kind of moving around from city to city, venue to venue, and I'm not there enough to form a relationship with anybody. So, you yeah. know, the only people that I'm form relationship with are the PR directors that, you know, and the team photographers, you know, that I do work with every day. The, those are where my connections are in the sport world. And, not with the athlete. I try and document what they're doing, covering my job, do what I can, but we're not hanging out. You know? <laughs> and, and, uh, I mean, everyone seems to think that that's, we have all those access to these players. We do not. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's always interesting. And I also find it interesting that like uh, myself included, uh, some of us weren't even sports fans when we started shooting sports. I know, mean, I know I was, I, I mean, I'm I, not. I, yeah, I like, I shoot sports, but like, I, I'm not a huge fan, but you're, I was going to say, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think of you of like talking about sports outside of work. Right. No. And then even growing up, I wasn't really a fan of anything. Like pff, I couldn't be bothered. But the thing that drew me into sport photography is especially when starting, it was, you know, I had, manual focus lenses and cameras. Like uh, when I started, I would buy all this used gear from people that were switching to autofocus. And and even, you know, back then the autofocus wasn't so great, but I got all this gear for cheap. So when I was in high school, I had a 3028. I had a couple of Nikon F3s with like the booster drive underneath it. You know, I was pretty set, you know, I got to say for a high school kid, but I bought it all pretty cheap. And I went to college with a 4028. So I had a 3028 and a 4028. And all this crap, and everyone's looking at me like, "How the heck?" You know, but I bought it all used from photographers that were upgrading their equipment. So that's how yeah. I would would get my equipment. And what I liked about sport was be, it was hard because, especially shooting stuff, you know, sports like boxing or you know, even shooting football with a manual focus lens, like trying to get all a handful of images sharp and follow the play took some talent. And that's what I what I liked about it. I liked it because it was hard. It was, you know, it was, a, I like a challenge and that's kind of what brought me into it. And even now, like it's still for me, like when I shoot a baseball game, I want to get every aspect of the play. So I'll start on the pitcher. I go to the batter, you know, I go to the infielder and I go back to either the pitcher or the, the batter to get reaction. Like I'm trying to like, to think of like, how can I get every aspect of this play? Like, boom, 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 boom. That is how I, I challenge myself these days. You know, I, during the regular season, I want to be ready for the playoffs to where I can get everything if I had to. This is awesome. So I've got these three questions. <laughs> this is, I got oh these boy. three questions I've been kind of ending uh, every interview with, and they're not elaborate, but I hope you take them whichever way you want and, and just run with them. So the first question is, what is a lesson that you wish you learned earlier in your career or when you were young? Uh, something you know now, something you use a lot now, whatever that might be. But like, what's a lesson you wish you knew a lot earlier on? There's one thing is like, if you have a bad game, don't let it carry over into the next game, which is easier said than done. And so you got to shake it off. It's a new day. Learn from what you screwed up on the day before and go with it. And some, cause you can get into a deep hole of where you've had a couple of bad shoots where you felt like you've missed things that you should get. Beating yourself up is not going to get that picture that you missed. It's only going to make you feel worse the more you beat yourself up, which yeah. is also easier said than done. I am notoriously hard on myself. I am one of those glass half empty sort of people where, you know, I also think that if it's not perfect, then I'm a complete failure. Like, you know, it's just, you know, maybe it's the, it's the German in me. I don't really know, but you know, <laughs> you got to get, cut yourself some slack every once in a while. Otherwise you're going to make yourself crazy, depressed, bitter, all of it. So I think managing stress is something that I've struggled with throughout my career, but, but certainly I'm getting better at it and to maybe cut yourself some slack. Yeah. I've said. That makes any, any sense, that makes you know, perfect sense. Uh, so the second question is a more easy one. <laughs> and that is, uh, <laughs> what, is, what is one piece of gear, whether it be expected or unexpected, um, or, or a thing or an item that you, you have to bring with you everywhere on every assignment, just something you can't leave home without that really, uh, makes it or breaks it for you. Um, I would say my 85 one, two lens, just, uh, you know, some sports you can, you you can use it. Um, I like the fact that I can really create that shallow depth of field with that. I use it when I shoot portraits for spring training. And I'm thankful that the lights that I use are can power down enough to where I can shoot at 1.2 with strobes. Uh, I think that, you know, it gives me a different look. 
Um, I started bringing it to baseball with me and basketball and some, I don't, it's not always successful, uh, obviously, but, you know, trying to shoot portraits of athletes during pregame, it's been kind of nice to try and, and play with that a little bit. So I've been doing that lately. That's been like something in the last, like, you know, several months I started doing, or I, I would say I, I've been starting to throw my, my strobe in my, my, my uh, speed light in my bag um, too. I mean, sometimes when you, more so with baseball than any other sport, obviously, but when it's batting practice time, or, you know, around 4 PM, sometimes like the shadows are kind of funky and you can throw in a little bit of light on someone's face and they have like a nice shadowed background of them or, you know, it's, it's, it's just something different to kind of give yourself a different sort of look, but you don't want to be too blasty with it. Um, you just want to fill in enough to, you know, to kind of, kind of make it interesting. I think it just kind of depends on the sport. So the last question, uh, so this audience is a little unknown for doing this interview before the podcast is launched, but I think it's going to be a good mix of early and mid career photographers, photo editors, uh, documentary filmmakers, um, just kind of people in our world of telling stories in, in the real world. What is one thing that you'd like to tell all of them or teach all of them or a lesson that you have for everybody? Maybe this is a pet peeve that uh, you, you wish people in that industry would uh, overcome, or maybe it's just um, just a life lesson that, you know, really rung true with you over the years. This job is a great job because it's always, for me, it's always something different. And if you're a curious person, if you are a person that I do kind of get bored easily. So for me, even though I'm doing five baseball games in a row, they're all different. And whether the weather's different, the outcome's different, the teams are different. And so that's what I like about this job. And I mean, it's definitely a lot of nights and weekends shooting sport. And so you have to be committed to that certainly. And you, if your relationships, some of them will suffer because of that. And you have to surround yourself with people that love you and support you and that understand that your job is extreme. And, you know, being said with your relationships, it's definitely a strain on relationships. And, you know, my husband and I don't have children. Um, and that was a conscious decision. And there, there are people that shoot sports and cover sports and have careers in sports that do have families. We just chose not to. It's just... That's looking at how, what my lifestyle is, a lot of nights, a lot of weekends, a lot of travel, you know, that's a lot to ask of your spouse to be like a, almost a single parent. And so for me, I think if you choose this career path, it's definitely not an easy one, but the rewards are really great. I mean, it's really, I, I gotta say, I have, I have the best job. I mean, I get to go to a lot of really great, I have a front row seat to a really wide variety of amazing sporty events, you know, but with that comes a lot of pressure to deliver, obviously, but it is, a, it, you miss birthdays, you miss weddings, you miss Christmases and Thanksgivings and whatnot. And as you get older or more established in your career, and you can maybe take some of those days off or decide, okay, this birthday is really important to me. So I'm not going to work this time. You, you do this dance and it's not easy. And hopefully you have understanding people in your life. And if you don't, you will find out who those people are really quickly, <laughs> you know, and you, and you, you can't take it too personally when you stop getting invited, getting invited to things. You know, if you turn somebody down like two, three years in a row, they're going to kind of figure out that you're, they're not, you're not going to come to their birthday party. So, you know, try not to be offended, but if at some point you could make it, you could say, Hey, I'm going to be off for your birthday this year. What are you doing? Are you having a party or is, you know, your kid's birthday party, whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Um, so that, that makes it, uh, make it, this job is tough on a lot of aspects of life, but you know, it's, um, it's, it's fun, you know? So I'm, 
I'm still going to do it as long as they, they keep paying me to do it. So <laughs> I would too. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, this has been a lot of fun, Elsa. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Well, thanks for having me. I was, uh, it's kind of like, oh, what what the heck can we talk about? I'm not the most dynamic, exciting person on the planet. So, <laughs> um, so hopefully, uh, if you if you're still listening at this point, I, I thank you for sticking around. <laughs> yeah, no, I think this has been awesome. Um, uh, if if you aren't already following Elsa, Elsa, how can they find you on uh, the internet to check out your work? All my social media handles are at Elsa Garrison you know, one word. So Instagram and Twitter are both that way, and that's you know the only two. Uh, platforms on or I guess Elsa Garrison just on Facebook. I'm actually more of an Instagram sort of person because it's it's more it's a bit more of a visual format say than Twitter, you know. Um I try yeah. and check my Twitter every couple of days, but I'm not as active on on that. I'm trying to be better. But uh it's kind of tough with Twitter because I feel like even with Instagram too, but Twitter's maybe more of a global audience. And for me being a New York based photographer, unless I'm doing playoffs or or something that has of national interest, like I'm not going to tweet about my regular season Yankees game because no one's <laughs> going to give a crap about that. So, but if, you know, if you ever uh, have any questions, just, you know, hit me up on Twitter and uh, I'll try and answer them as best I can. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so this has been really, really fun. And if uh, you aren't already subscribed, please go subscribe to the podcast. Uh, rate us five stars as everyone always asks you to do. And uh, go follow Elsa on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I think uh, she's she's just someone that I really think everybody should be following and checking out. And I think as far as sports photography goes, there's there's a ton of people out there, but there's a few that really do it day in and day out in a really professional manner. And uh, Elsa's definitely one of them. So thanks so much for listening and always go check out the Patreon to support that if you want to support the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Reciprocity Podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe and rate us five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found value in this podcast and want to learn even more, head over to patreon.com slash reciprocity podcast to support the show.